Blog Talk Radio. in between. Live from Los Angeles, California, welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Shaw McCain, and I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show was created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow me on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. The call-in number to listen and to call in with questions in the second part of the show is 619-924-9744. And the Paranormal and the Sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. During this show, I can take questions in order in chat, and you may call in with your questions and speak with our guests during the second half. Any buzz killers in chat or on the phone will be kicked out, and I have a copy of your info. I'm going to call you back and bug you, so please be polite and stay nice, okay? Now, I have a couple of announcements to make before we welcome our awesome guests on. Zero International has a July event, July 12, 2014, and the speakers are going to be speaking about the Cisco Grove UFO Encounter and Mexico's Roswell with speakers Ruben Uarte and Noe Torres. It's going to be at the Veterans Memorial Complex. 4117 Overland Avenue, and that's in Culver City. And you can contact uh, www.cerointernational.com for more information. It's only 15 bucks at the door, and it's well worth it, and there are going to be some awesome speakers. And next week on the Paranormal and the Sacred, we welcome George Haas. Now, he's a city researcher, artist, author, and founder of Sedonia Institute, and he'll be speaking about his research and also anomalies that he's found on Mars and the city projects coming up. And that's going to be very interesting. And I also would like to ask you tonight to please tune into my friend's show, The Paranormal Angels, every Wednesday evening. The Angels bring you a great guest this week. It will be Martha Hazard-Decker. And Martha has spent 30 years in law enforcement and is also a paranormal investigator and author of a great book, Paranormal Profiling. And author Geraldine Palmer Bowles and Marsha Becker will have no shortage of questions, and I'm sure will be interesting callers. And plus, they say that they dance. I'm not sure if they quote karaoke, but uh, they dance while they're on the show, except nobody can see them. Anyway, I love these people. So please keep Marsha Becker in your thoughts and prayers, as she's having some pretty serious uh, health challenges. And you can find I, I do post it on my Facebook page, and um, there's a www.blogtalkradio.com slash the infinite supernatural network slash twenty fourteen. And then that's how you reach them. And also I post it. Now tonight we have an incredible guest and then I'm gonna do his intro and uh then welcome him on the show. Uh Chris Putnam is a best selling author and holds a master's degree in theological studies, a bachelor's degree in religion and mathematics, as well as certification in Christian apologetics. He has a certificate, certificate in 
parapsychology from the Rhine Research Center and is registered as a parapsychological field investigator with the Office of the Paranormal Investigation. He's a lifetime member of the I don't know how to pronounce this one. K O I N O N I A Institute. He snapped down me with that. And it's a multi-denominational Christian think tank. In addition to a scholarly work in apologetic theology, Chris Putnam is the best-selling co-author of two recent books with co-author Thomas Horn, Pietrus Romanus and Exo Vaticana, as well as a contributor to the compilation of Pandemonium's Engine and the Rise of True Transhumanism. I want to know about that. And also, he's going to be discussing his latest book, The Supernatural Worldview, Examining the Paranormal, which is proving to be a scholarly approach, which I'm really enjoying reading his stuff. So I'm going to welcome him to the show right now. Welcome aboard, Chris. You're live on the Paranormal and the Sacred. Hi, Chris. Hello. Chris, can you hear me? Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm... can you hear me? Hi, welcome. Yeah, you're Hi. on live. Okay, yeah, okay, I think we had a little problem at first there. It's great yeah. to be on with you. Uh, uh, you know, it's just a beautiful here, a night in L.A., I mean, absolutely beautiful. Um, we're having spectacular weather and a lot of positive stuff around here. And actually, that's where I meant you. You were at, you were at a MUFON uh, thing in Burbank, and that's where I first saw you and meant you. And uh, then that's we all right. went to Denny's. Yeah, remember we went to Denny's for coffee after and talked, and you gave a spectacular talk, and uh, you're very learned, so I have to say I'm a little nervous uh, doing this interview. <laughs> well, that was that was quite a thrill. Uh, Pete uh, Elmore of the uh, MUFON Los Angeles invited me to, flew me all the way across the country from North Carolina to, to California to speak to the MUFON group there in Burbank, California, and that was quite a thrill, and... Uh, I enjoyed that talk, and I got to meet with uh, CERO, a support group for alien abductees. That was pretty interesting. So it was quite a um, an interesting weekend that I spent there in Los Angeles. I know, because you know Lori, too. So uh, Lori, uh, she's our cinema photographer. She does her shooting the cameras and stuff like that. So I know that you know her, and... I'm also a member of CERO, so I've been there for uh, 21 years. And, okay. Um, okay. So uh, anyway, so do you, where do you want to start? Could you kind of give us, you know, your background, where you grew up a little, and introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Well, you know, I kind of have a, a an interesting uh, story Um you know, right now I'm known as a Christian author, but I really didn't grow up in the church. Um, I pretty much grew up uh, as a heavy metal guitar player kid. <laughs> that was my identity when I was in high school. I was kind of a long-haired, black T-shirt, cigarette smoke, and pothead. And um, that's really what I was into. And you know, it, it, if you would have asked me back when I was 16 and 18 years old, you know, did I think I would end up having a master's degree in theology and writing books like I am now? I would have probably laughed at you. Um, so, you know, part of uh, of my belief in the supernatural is that a lot of supernatural things happened to me that uh, absolutely changed my life in fundamental ways, changed my personality, changed my character. And so I, I don't have really 
any doubts about the existence of God or really about the Christian message in general, the gospel, that it absolutely takes people who are fallen and broken and transforms their lives and turns them into different people, because that's, that's my personal experience. Now, I wouldn't use that you know, as an argument in a debate with a non-believer or something, because it's, it's very personal and subjective. But for me personally, that, that really gives me a lot of assurance that what I believe is true, just because I, I don't even recognize myself when I look back to the way I was. So I kind of was very skeptical about this whole Bible thing and the whole Christian faith. And, you know, really, as when I first started getting into it, you know, I, I didn't really believe half of it. And so I, I really started looking into it and answering my own questions. And um, I had somewhat, somewhat of a scientific background by the time that I got into the church. So, you know, I had a lot of questions about science and creation and the flood and evolution and all these issues. So really before I could I could throw myself into you know, really put my faith in it. I wanted to make sure that it was coherent, that, that I thought it was true. So that's really where all the, the apologetics interest comes from. A lot of it was from answering my own questions. Now, you know, some of the people, if you follow me on Facebook and see some of the, mm -hmm. the little uh, debates I get into and discussions I have with other believers, I don't always follow, you know, the normal uh, traditional patterns on some things, especially when it comes to the issues of science and things like that. I've, I've been getting into it with the young earth creationist crowd because it's just something I don't really follow. I don't think the Bible teaches the world is 6,000 years old. And, you know, a lot of people no. do, and I understand why they came to that conclusion. If you just read the Bible, it's kind of easy to think that. But if you expose yourself to outside criticism, it's not very easy to think that. Um, so, you know, I, I come at it with a background where I've been on both sides of the fence. So that, that makes it a little bit unique compared to a lot of people who write this kind of stuff. But The Supernatural Worldview, my new book, is really, um, it, it's, a, it's a different sort of book that you would expect from a Christian author. And, you know, I really wrote it to two audiences, um, one being the Christian church, and I offer mostly a kind of a critique because what I have found, people that have come out of experimenting with the occult or New Age religion, people that are coming from that kind of background, um, when they hear some of the answers that the church gives, they just don't sound very convincing. And I don't think they are. I don't think they're very coherent. Um, you know, there's a kind of a tendency to blanketly demonize everything we don't understand. It's kind of the default position that it's, you know, it must be demons. And if we don't understand it, it's yeah. demons. And, and so, you know, I don't think that's a wise way to, to, to answer questions. And, no, because you know, it sometimes shuts it might be true. the door right in your face, really. As soon as you say that, right. most people well, shut down. Yeah. It, you know, it can, you know, especially if you don't yeah. really know. And that's, that's what really bothers me is it's when it's something we don't understand, and that's just the default position. I think it's better to say, you know, I don't really know. Um, you know, that, that kind of bothers me a little bit. It makes me uncomfortable, so, but I don't really know. But typically that's not the way a lot of pastors will answer. You know, anything 
that's weird or off the beaten path is automatically labeled a cult or witchcraft or demonic. And it's not always the case. So, you know, I kind of take the take my Christian brothers and sisters to task for that point. We, you know, sometimes we just don't know. And sometimes the Bible doesn't even address some of the, some of the things that, that we're talking about. But others it does. Um, you know, like I, I believe the Bible does, you know, have examples of ghosts. You know, and typically a lot of pastors would say that ghosts are demons disguising as human spirits. But there's some very clear-cut examples in the Bible that are humans, that are obviously human spirits, that are ghosts. The ghost of Samuel in First Samuel 28 is just a real obvious, clear example. Um, so that's not a good answer. But so that's that's the one audience. But I also, you know, I'm not just critical of the church, but I'm also trying to prepare them for what I believe is a dramatic change that is ongoing in Western culture. And so the other audience that the book is kind of directed to is people that are coming out of this paranormal background who perhaps have been into the occult or perhaps ghost hunting or parapsychology or, you know, new age religion or, or whatever it might be. And they're maybe looking at Christianity to see what it's all about. And, you know, and so I'm trying to offer somewhat of a of an evangelistic kind of uh, thing for those sorts of people that might present it in a way they've never seen it presented before. Um, so that, that's the other audience I have in mind. You know, I'm not trying to ram it down anybody's throat or anything, but uh, I make a case for, for why, why it does explain the world that we see and the world that we live in and why I, I think it, it probably is the best explanation that I've come across. So I make that case for that audience. And I'm trying to bring the two together, but the overarching thesis that runs through both is that Western culture is experiencing what I call a paranormal paradigm shift. And that's really this idea that the paranormal is becoming the new normal. <laughs> yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, to go back for a second to uh, – Aging the planet, how to get the proper age for the planet, and that um, why people are giving it a number at all. When um, I wanted to talk to you specifically about these weird objects that are found uh, that are so ancient, in, in like, a, okay, I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Is these strange uh, Clerksdorp spheres? I don't know if you've heard of these artifacts that are strangely perfect, and they're uh, hollow. They have these lines around them, and they're, they're so perfectly balanced. Well, they're finding them uh, in rock, which are like pre-Cambrian and dated like 2.8 billion years ago. How is the other people explaining this? I don't think it's a problem for you, and it's not a problem for me. What, what, I don't, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. You said some kind, it's a, a you know sphere, it's so perfectly... It's a, it's a round, they're round metal objects, uh-huh. but they're spheres, they're called spheres, and that they're okay. very, very old. And then there's other things found in charcoal veins that are very deep in the earth, and it turns out to be like a bell with a with a clapper or something made out of metal or just strange stuff is showing up. It's just odd stuff. Well, you so say you're something that clearly appears to be manufactured, is yes. that what you're saying? Exactly. I, I know that yeah. There's there's books the the forbidden archaeology book and um, there's things called out of place artifacts that, that I've looked about. at. 
Yeah, ooh parts or something like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. there are a lot, a lot of those interesting things. And you know, some of them do seem to suggest perhaps a very ancient civilization. And I haven't done a terribly lot of research into that. that okay. You know, some of it is hard to filter. I know some of the stuff ends up kind of being a little bit hoaxy looking, but you know, I think there are some legitimate ones. Um, you know, a lot of uh, you know, theologians, even classically, back in the 19th century, there were really there was like all this new evidence coming from geology that really supported an ancient Earth. So even famous preachers like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He's, he was living in England. Um, he, he believed the Earth was millions and millions of years old back in the 19th century. And what they proposed was an idea called the gap theory. If you look at the way Genesis 1 reads, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2, and the earth was formless and void. Bam, the earth's already there. This is before the whole creation week even starts. You know, God hasn't said, let there be light. He hasn't said the first day, any of that stuff. But here, the earth is already there. Um, so you know, a lot of these guys looked at that and thought, well, maybe uh, God wasn't creating the earth you know, out of whole cloth during that seven-day creation week in Genesis that he was remaking it after it had been destroyed uh, and become formless and void. So this is an idea called the gap theory, and it's really popular in the 19th century. But it, it, it kind of makes some sense out of some other mysteries that you see in the Bible. For instance, you know, right there in Genesis chapter 3, we have the serpent... Um, which I don't really believe was a snake. The Hebrew word is nakash, and you could actually translate that to mean the shining one. So uh, Hebrew scholar Dr. Michael Heiser makes a good case that we're dealing with a luminescent, serpentine, reptilian-type being that could talk, because obviously snakes don't talk, uh, who beguiled Eve into eating this forbidden fruit. So already you have you know, some sort of fallen uh, rebel against the Creator already present in the garden in chapter 3. And there's really no mention in Genesis 1 or 2 of how any of that happened. Where did these rebel beings come from that aren't human? Um, so that suggests that there's some history that we're not being told about, that it's not an exhaustive account of everything God created. And so perhaps, you know, these theologians looked at this formless and void earth in Genesis verse two, chapter 1, verse 2, and thought perhaps that God had destroyed the world from some sort of angelic rebellion or something like that. Now, if that's the case, what you're saying about finding some kind of manufactured objects or even some kind of weird technology, you know, somewhere way back in the Precambrian, that would make sense of that. That would account mm -hmm. for that. Maybe it's looking back to that civilization, maybe the angels you know, inhabited the earth or something like that, and there was some sort of massive rebellion, and the earth was rendered formless and void, and it got started over. So something like the gap theory would, you know, handle that kind of data really easily within a biblical framework. Yes, it's uh, it's interesting, and I was reading the the uh, notes on your book, so I, there is just so much to cover. Uh, what do you want to focus on tonight? Well, you know, like I said, with the with the supernatural worldview, you know, I, yeah. I was really looking at this idea that we're in this paradigm shift. 
Now, when I got into apologetics and theology and whatnot, it was around 2005, and this is right when, you know, we have people like Richard Dawkins writing the book The God Delusion. Um, you know, this whole idea of atheistic naturalism that really discounts any sort of supernatural realm whatsoever. So, you know, a lot of my book, The Supernatural Worldview, is presenting evidence that contradicts naturalism. You know, I, I'm arguing for supernaturalism. And the point that I, I'm making, you know, to the two audiences is that we're not going to have a choice uh, as far as whether we believe this stuff or not, because I believe this paradigm shift is well underway, and that the evidence for paranormal things and supernatural things is going to become so self-evident, so in-your-face, that it's not going to be an option not to believe it in anymore. So even, you know, these new atheist naturalists, their worldview is going to get shattered. And, you know, the way that I'm yeah. parsing it, the whole neo-atheist uh, movement of the late 2000s, you know, that followed Richard Dawkins, it's not really the resurgence of atheism so much as it is its death throes. Um, you know, I know that they're really ingrained in academia. They, they control the science departments of major universities, and that's why they're still around. But there's plenty of contrary evidence that completely throws naturalism head over its heels. And, and some of the main areas really are, are human consciousness, this idea of, of self-awareness. Uh, naturalism has never had any kind of coherent explanation for consciousness. Um, they basically will argue that your self-awareness, you know, your sense of yourself is just uh, what they call an epiphenomenon of the brain. Now, an epiphenomenon is, is known as an emergent property. And that, that's just kind of a fancy way of saying um, it's a property of something that, that comes from it, kind of like the way wetness is a property of water. So you have water, and wetness is a property of water. But what you notice, you know, with the kind of relationships with, you know, things like that are emergent properties, is they, they're never greater than the thing they emerge from. So, but what these naturalists would have us believe is that consciousness is an emergent property of biology, of, of, of chemical reactions. But, you know, that's really not even coherent if you think about it because, you know, our consciousness, our ability to reason, our mind, is really how we determine truth. It's how we make decisions. Um, now, chemical reactions don't tell us if things are true or not. It just doesn't even make sense. Um, you know, if, if what they're saying is true, most of them are also determinists. They really think that everything is already determined. Um, in the sense that you don't have free will. And this is really is a corollary of this whole atheistic naturalism. It's a material reduction view where everything reduces to matter, to chemistry, to physics, to atoms, and it's just all chemical reactions. And so it really, it, it's, so, it's kind of silly because if it's true that everything is determined, why are they writing books trying to convince us that atheism is true? You know, why does Richard Dawkins care if we have a God delusion? Because nothing he can do is going to change it, because it's all determined anyway. It's, it's really a self-defeating worldview, um, but it, it's, it's very much driven by science, so it has a lot of support. But ultimately, it's collapsing. And, 
yeah, I think that the sorts of things that I put in the book, they're very unconventional for a Christian apologetic argument, but I think they're going to become very compelling in the future, and that is the evidence for psi, uh, this idea of things like telepathy, precognition, um, precognitive dreams, these kind of things, ESP. I think that that evidence is growing very compelling. Uh, Near-death experiences, at the minimum, they do show that you're not just your brain, that your consciousness can actually separate from your body and even perceive things apart from your physical body. I think the evidence for that is, is very compelling. Um, and then, you know, we look at other lines of evidence. Um, I, I look at some of the things for, for the Christian uh, faith in the form of prophecy. Uh, there's some really astounding prophecies that go from, you know, that span thousands of years that you can prove were written down before they were fulfilled. And then this whole idea that, that runs through the book as well, there was a, a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee. Now, he was writing in the early 20th century about the same time that J.B. Rhine started the Duke Parapsychology Lab in Durham, North Carolina. Now, Rhine was one of the first parapsychologist to really try to prove ESP in the laboratory. Um, and that's where I actually went and took classes. It was at the Rhine Research Center, which is just an extension of what's left of the Rhine ESP laboratory at Duke. Um, but at the same time, this, this uh, Chinese Christian in China, his name was Watchman Nee, he wrote a book called The Latent Powers of the Soul. And it was really a book about you know, things like ESP, but he believed that these were uh, powers that everybody has to some extent that were really, um, that were fully present in man before he fell into a sinful state. But when, like when Adam and Eve sinned, that they lost a lot more than just a piece of real estate. You know, that when God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, they lost their, their ability to interact in the spirit realm the way that they had before. Uh, so, you know, this is why everyone has a trace of these things, but some people maybe have more access to it than others. That was his idea, and so he called them the latent powers of the soul. So when I look at the evidence, you know, for things like ESP, we kind of look at it in that regard. Some of these things really do appear to just be natural abilities that everyone has. And we can talk about that a little bit more later, and we can talk about yeah. why it is um, – I think it's just a natural thing, uh, rather than anything that's a cult or, you know, to do with magic or any kind of conjuring or sorcery. Those things, I think, are real, too, but it's a different sort of thing. So anyway, but Watchman Nee, he really believed that, you know, as the end times approach, meaning, you know, this idea that Jesus Christ is going to return um, and, you know, set things right, he's going to, you know, clear the world of evil and, and put things back into the Garden of Eden, basically. Really, the promise of the book of Revelation is that God is going to solve this problem of evil that everyone fully recognizes. You know, most people recognize there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of needless suffering, and a lot of hurtful things that go on in the world. And, you know, a lot of people blame God for that. And, you know, they say, how can a good God exist when there's all this pain and suffering? Well, you know, the answer for that, you know, the Bible has always had the answer. It's just kind of you have to be patient. Uh, 
And so it's it's not fully realized. But the idea is that, yeah, he's going to come back and, and solve that problem. Um, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, and that's what all the judgments and whatnot in the book of Revelation are about. It, it, it is uh, it's pretty um, scary, scary stuff. Um, but the promise at the end of it is that for those, you know, that honor God and, you know, try to, to recognize him in the way they live and that they, they believe in Jesus, that, that he's going to set things right and they're going to live forever on a recreated earth with no evil. So that's, that's the promise. But so as that approaches, we expect that the enemy of mankind, you know, I believe in a real personal devil, I believe he exists, I believe there are lots of fallen angels and demons who are working toward our destruction. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that's the case. I, I believe that uh, I had interactions with them before I became a believer. In fact, I was more convinced of that when, when I first came in the doors of the church than I was anything else. I pretty much ran in the door being chased by them. Um, and I didn't have any doubt about their existence. And that, that kind of strongly suggested to me that the other side was real as well. So that's another part of my right. story. And I, and I handle that in the book as well. I'll talk some about spiritual warfare and, and how all that works. So Watchman Nee's idea is that as this event approaches, um, there's a prophecy in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, that talks about uh, there's a war in heaven. It's an angelic war between Michael and the holy angels and the devil and his angels. And that as this war ensues, um, Michael and, and the good guys are going to get the best of, of Satan, and they're going to cast him to earth. Um, he's not going to have access to the heavenly realms anymore. And, um, and when he gets cast to earth, he's not, not going to be pleased. It says, woe to you on the earth where the devil has come to you, and he knows his time is short. Um, many of us suspect that that event is very close. And when that event happens, things are going to get really dark. Now, I think we're already seeing things beginning to get dark now, uh, especially in Western culture, as kind of the Christian consensus has faded and we've really kind of increasingly become more pagan. You know, I don't know about you, but just in the last year or two, I've noticed so many just bizarre crimes, just things I've just never heard of before. And, and I discuss these in the yeah. book. There's one footnote. There's one footnote, I think I put 20 articles, just kind of evidencing this idea. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, the mass school shootings, uh, you know, a guy walks into a kindergarten class and blows away 20 little kids, I mean, just in the last year. Um, I, you know, some of these crimes are just unconscionable to me. I don't understand. Well, and, just, and, and animals, too. I mean, things I have never heard of being committed against the animals that are in our trust and care. I, 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 it is getting so horrible. It's like, just turn on the news and it's a horror movie. Something's it, suffering, it, you know. I, it, I send out a general on. prayer. Yeah, I send out a general prayer for suffering because there's so much, you know, suffering. I don't know if this is going to happen in my lifetime. I do know it's winding up or down, whatever you want to say it. But Yeah, you know, I agree um, with you. Yeah, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not sure it will happen in my lifetime because, as I understand uh, what I've read in the Bible, that certain things have to take place, and so far the Bible itself hasn't lied to me, you know, so... I, I agree with I'm, that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, right. I mean, so, it could so happen in our lifetime. So if things happen, it, you know, yeah. it, it could be in our lifetime, but 
I I doubt it because there's certain things have to transpire, you know, that'll be almost like what happened to Noah. You know, the people. Well, yeah, I would think that they would need to probably rebuild a temple in Jerusalem, and that that's probably yeah. not going to happen overnight. Um, but I think it could happen in ten years. You know, if they if they, if they do it, um, so. It's possible that it could happen in our lifetime. I wouldn't be surprised if it's not. The reformation of the nation of Israel, I think, kind of put things on the short end, and that happened in 1948. So, you know, I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not a date setter by any means. I don't claim to have any yeah. kind of knowledge of exactly when that is. I do think it's imminent, you know, but like you said, it, it could be 10 years, it could be 40. I, I really don't know, um, you know, but I... Yeah, I tend to think that this ramping up that we're seeing is indicative that, that it is definitely uh, heating up. Um, yeah, there was this case that I found astounding this year. Uh, it was about a family named the Ammons family, and you probably remember it. Uh, there was a boy who was demonized, and they took him to the hospital. And the thing that's astounding is just the documentation. I got a copy of the caseworker's report I think it's from the state of Indiana, and you know we have a registered nurse and a clinical social worker who both went on record uh, and wrote in the official state documents that this boy walked up the wall vertically onto this, walked across the ceiling, and then flipped around back and landed on his feet. I mean, something that's like right out of you know a Hollywood you know horror movie. Yeah. Then, I mean, he literally walked straight up a vertical wall and across the ceiling. And then flip back down on his feet. And I've never, you know, I've seen that stuff in movies, and I've heard people talk about that kind of thing, but I've never seen two professionals document it in state forms. <laughs> and How that bizarre. was pretty astounding. You imagine for them not even expecting it and to see that what it did to them personally. It had to blow their worldview apart, you know, That's especially if they if they didn't believe in supernatural things. You know, even though I do believe in them, you know, to see something like that would really, I think it would affect me. Um, you know, believing is one thing, but seeing does tend to, to, to change things. It, it gives you a level of conviction that um, you don't have by kind of a theoretical belief. So that's another, that brings to mind another, you know, point in the book. You know, Christians in America, you know, evangelicals, people that, that you know, that really do believe the Bible, you know, a lot of times we live like naturalists in that, you know, a lot of this stuff about angels and demons and whatnot is, is largely theoretical. It's something we read about. We don't really experience it. And I think that this is where maybe some of the charismatic people probably have maybe a little bit better grasp on the supernatural realm than other Christians. Now, I'm not talking about, there, there's some fake, funny-looking stuff out there, but there's also some real genuine charismatic stuff that goes on. And I talk about that some in the book. But what, one of the ideas that I, I sort of talk about is this idea of the excluded middle. And this is pretty much what's happened to a lot of the Western church. And it, it's based on a, a paper that was written by a, a missiologist, it's just a fancy word for a missionary uh, theologian, a guy that studies missionary work and writes about that. But you know, he, he came up with this idea, he called it the, the flaw of the excluded middle, in that he, when he went from America to somewhere like Africa to minister to people who had a completely different worldview with a really active supernatural realm, I mean, they were completely used to interacting with all kinds of spirits. Now, 
in the West, Christians normally, you know, we believe in God, we worship God, um, but this whole middle realm is really kind of theoretical. We don't really have much interaction with that at all. So it's kind of the excluded middle that he's talking about. So, you know, we're, we have our lives on, in the world, and we live like naturalists. You know, we, when we get sick, we go to the doctor. Um, you know, when, when our car breaks down, we fix it. Um, it's just kind of a real natural, normal Western way of life. But, you know, we acknowledge God, we pray to God. But this whole middle supernatural realm with, you know, strange things like supernatural healing or speaking in tongues or any of these kind of things, most of us don't really have anything to do with that. Um, so we've excluded this middle realm. But when you go to the third world, when you go to the, what they call the majority world, it's absolutely the other way around. They have a very interactive view of the middle realm and not so much an understanding of naturalism or sometimes not really an understanding of the creator God. So a lot of missionaries, when they go to these areas, they just freak out because they get encountered with, you know, in-your-face demon possession and all kinds of stuff like that, and they've never seen it before, and they have no clue what to do. Um, now, the, the reason why this is a huge problem for the Western church is, see, that paradigm is shifting, and that's, that's what I'm talking about, this paranormal paradigm shift. And it's kind of like I, I really think that the devil's strategy has been, you know, that line in the movie, The Usual Suspect, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. I think he did that really well for the last 200 yeah. years or so. And, and that's been his dominant strategy. But I see that changing. Like I said, like that case with this kid walking up the wall right in front of two professionals who document it in official paperwork. You know, when that evidence starts to build, then this whole he doesn't exist thing is not going to fly for much longer. Um, so, you know, that means that the church has a huge blind spot. Uh, if we've excluded that middle realm and our pastors and our our theologians and our, the guys that are going to seminary aren't learning how to interact in this way, and they don't have any sort of experience with it, they're going to be completely blindsided as these phenomena increase, and they're not going to know what to do. So we can actually learn a lot from Christians in Africa, for instance. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm arguing in the book as well. We really That's really my call to the Christian church is that, we need to address this before it's too late. Uh, we're going to get caught with our pants down um, is well, really the idea. At, you know, yeah, they're living a little tiny, narrow life. And unless you meet these people, now the missionaries get to meet them, but I got to meet uh, people from Egypt and other places. I was uh, studying iconography, you know, uh, writing icons, which we call painting, religious pictures or icons and stuff like that, with priests and people coming from Egypt, their their love and kindness and their tradition is so immediate. You know, they are, we kind of have closed ourselves off behind uh, many doors and personas. This is the way I think. When I meet them, I sing a ring of truth. Like they're not hidden under a lot of bunch of stuff that we are because we're like hiders. Whenever who we really think we are, say we are, or or whatever, but they seem to be so kind and loving and uh, welcoming and interested in others, genuinely interested in others, and they have all this tradition. It's very beautiful to me. Yeah, you know, I, there there are you know people like that in the West as well. In fact, 
you know, if it hadn't been for something like that, I, I probably would not have, have ever really come to faith as well. It wasn't, you know, I've mentioned a lot of things about my story, but one of the things was a young seminary student that, that really spent a lot of time with me, and he was just a very pure person, but I'd never met anybody yeah, like beautiful. him. He, yeah. he, was 32, he was 32 years old. He'd never been on a date because when he was 11 years old, he promised God that he wasn't going to do any of that until he was ready to become, become a pastor. So he was in his mm-hmm. last year of seminary, and he was looking for a wife, so he started going to the single Sunday school class. And, I mean, he was completely sincere. And I've never met yeah. anybody like that in my life. I didn't know That's people exactly like that even existed. Yeah. yeah, I'd never met anyone like that. And he just, like, completely blew my mind. Uh, I, I just didn't imagine that people could be that way. And, yeah, he was he was legit. And, you know, I think God sent him in my life for a reason. I couldn't find any flaws in him. Now, he would tell me that he's not perfect, you know, and he would he would laugh at me about the way that I, I perceived him. But to me, this guy was just like he modeled Jesus in a way that yeah. I've never seen before. And I think, you know, he was just like the perfect person to uh, crack my skull. I mean, crack my really thick you know, kind of skepticism that I had when I first showed up at church, you know, mm-hmm. 15 years ago. Or and, you know, he, so he was really fun, fundamental in, in leading me to faith. And, and that's just something that you can't fake. It's something that's completely genuine. And I'd never encountered that before. So uh, his name is Dennis that's Till. He lives in Sacramento, California, out there somewhere. I think he's he's still teaching Sunday school out there. But uh, Dennis uh, mm-hmm. was instrumental in my life. Well, God bless Dennis, because I think that was totally meant to be. And that's exactly why I was saying what I was saying. When you meet these people, it's uh, shocking, it's shocking that uh, how, uh, well, they're uh, so spiritual. You know, I'm not even talking about guru people. These are just plain, loving, kind, spiritual people, and they're living a, their faith. They're really doing it with no hesitation. It's just a beautiful thing to be around. I'm not like that. I, I wish I was. I'm getting better. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, I agree. I struggle, it, Chris. It's a process. So, <laughs> it's a process. That's what I'm talking about. It's a process. And I want to read a little bit out of your book because I found this is really uh, with what you were talking about. And it's, it's one of the most interesting things I've read uh, anywhere. But I really love your work, by the way. But anyway, let's read this part. It says, a common mistake made by skeptics is to assume science has disproven supernatural phenomena. It is formally called a category error. Uh, science, by definition, deals with the natural, thus the supernatural is outside its purview. And it says, Christian philosopher Gregory K-O-U-K-O-K-O, okay, and he makes a colorful illustration by asking, can you weigh a chicken with a yardstick? So you can go ahead and talk about the rest of that, but I thought it was yeah. uh, very unique. It's a great analogy, and, yeah, that it comes is. from Greg Kokel. And uh, his ministry is called Stand to Reason, uh, str.org. And he's one of the people that I have learned a lot from. He has mentored me through his ministry. And so this is an argument that Greg uses against naturalism. And he says, you know, for a scientist to say that science has disproven the supernatural is really reaching outside the purview of science. Science, by definition, uh, deals with natural things. That's what science is. So trying to use science to disprove the supernatural is like trying to weigh a chicken with a yardstick. Obviously, yardsticks measure, 
you know, length. They measure distance. They don't measure weight. So it's the wrong tool. Uh, science cannot even weigh in on the supernatural because it's outside of its paradigm. It's not something that it can qualify. It's qualified to talk about, um, and, and that's the point. It's it's a category yes. error to take something that deals with natural things and then make claims about supernatural things. Yeah, it's a great analogy. It is a great analogy, and uh, again, uh, now we're talking about because you mentioned that. Um, I've uh, been researching it. What you said is that uh, uh, the, not, there's a, a prophecy of the church coming to an end, and there's a last pope and things like that. And okay. um, what do you? Let me try to think about this. There is something so strange that happened. Is when that pope resigned. I found mm-hmm. that stunning. I don't know if, if you reacted like that, but I was like stunned. <laughs> well, yeah. It, and. It, this is one of those things that changed my life as well. <laughs> yeah, that's um, what I'm saying. So this book, it was like the first book that I co-authored with Tom Horn. It's called Petrus Romanus. Now, the title of the book uh, comes from this prophecy that you're talking about. It's a prophecy okay. given by, allegedly, by St. Malachi Morgare, who was a 12th century Irish saint. Now, as the legend goes... He had a vision of all the popes till the end of time, which was a list of 111. And he didn't, you know, he, what he wrote with these little Latin phrases that somehow correspond to each papacy. And it was kind of like a prediction, either describing something about the pope's name or events during his pontificate, or a lot of them speak to the imagery on the heraldry, the coat of arms, which is kind of an art and a science in Roman Catholicism. So a lot of them seem to describe the coat of arms of that pope, or it's just something something unique about each pope. So there's this long list of these little Latin phrases. And, you know, some of them are very compelling. Over time, a lot of the the, the matches of these phrases to the to the actual things in the, during the pope's life are uncannily accurate. Now, a lot of people have criticized it. Um, there's a lot of debate whether Malachi really wrote it or not. Um, I kind of bypassed that. Uh, I did. I think our book actually has probably some of the best scholarship you'll ever find on the Malachi prophecy because I found you know good sources on both sides of the debate and presented both sides. Now most sides, most books don't present both sides very equally, but I found a lot of good scholars who believe it's real. Um, and most of those sources you just don't find discussed in, in other works. So I was able to locate a lot of information that was rather unique. Um, but to really, it doesn't matter to me whether Malachi wrote it because it's provably in print in the year 1572 and widely disseminated. So all you really have to do is look for for good. Did it make any good predictions after that time? You know, where nobody disputes that it was already printed and widely, you know, disseminated all around the world um, in this book. But yeah, there's a lot of really good ones that happen after that. So it's hard to just brush it aside. Um, but so what you're talking about is that, you know, out of that long list, Pope Francis is the last one, you know, on that sequence. Now, whether or not it's a real prophecy remains to be seen. Um, but the prophecy that matches up to Pope Francis uh, says that, so this is where the name of the book, Petrus Romanus, it means Peter the Roman. 
that's just Latin, Petrus Romanus. But what it, what it says is, uh, during the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman, who will nourish the sheep during many tribulations. When they are finished, the city of seven hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. Now that sounds very apocalyptic. It sounds like the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Um, and so it really seems to be forecasting the end times during the reign of Pope Francis, if the prophecy turns out to be real. Uh, I don't know. I really, you know, I don't really have a dog in the fight as to whether it's real or not. Mm -hmm. I think there's some compelling, um, there's some compelling hits that, you know, lead me to say you shouldn't discount it and just toss it. Um, You should pay attention to it. And that's really all I argued in the book. I'm not trying to force this thing as a real true prophecy or God's word or anything like that. A lot of people have accused me of those things, but they really didn't read my book very carefully. Because I've always right. been tentative about it. I've always been tentative about it. But I think it is, um, it's very suggestive, and it has some compelling reasons to think that it could actually be true. You know, one of the things that, as a historian, one of the principles that we look at when we look at something is called the principle of embarrassment. Uh, people don't make up things that are embarrassing to their position. Okay? So that we look at this as, some, as a sign of authenticity. Why would the Catholic Church make up a prophecy that says the city of Seven Hills, Rome, is going to be judged? Um, the city of Seven Hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. Why would the Catholic Church, what would they have to gain by creating a prophecy uh, that, that implies Rome is going to be destroyed? That, if that's the principle of embarrassment. That kind of lends it to seem a little more credible to me uh, than some sort of, you know, cooked up Catholic propaganda or something because it doesn't make sense that they would have any, any reason to promote anything like that because um, it does seem yeah, to identify them. The opposite. Yeah, exactly. They're typically Catholic eschatology is that the Catholic Church uh, dominates the world that everybody becomes Catholic um, and the, the kingdom of God is Catholicism. That's what they've always held in the past. So the idea that Rome is going to be destroyed and judged is not really uh, something that you would expect coming from a Catholic source. That, that makes me want to take it a little more seriously. But a lot of the people that have criticized our book didn't really read any of that. They think, oh, these guys are Protestants, but they're promoting a Catholic prophecy. It's like, yeah, you obviously didn't read the book, did you? Um, it, it just right. astounds me when well, people people critique you and don't Catholic. read your book. <laughs> I know. I, I so, don't like that because we want to hear some intelligent critiques if you have them. But just right. not random pat stuff, you know. Oh I my have, gosh! Somebody in chat has just yeah. Somebody in chat just said, actually wrote down what the prophecy is. The last pope, Peter the Roman, the 112th prophecy states that in the final right. persecution of the Holy Roman Church there will be reigned Petrus Romanus, who will yeah. feed his flock amid many tribulations. Okay, so that kind of gave me the chills. After which the Seven Hills City will be destroyed. Right. And the, okay, right. so. It rings true because this is the first pope that actually went to the Wailing Wall. When I saw uh-huh. that, that kind of rocked my world. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if it had the same effect on you. When I saw him at the Wailing Wall, and then uh, I, I just saw that he had—he was there with a Greek Orthodox priest. I'm, I was baptized and born uh-huh. Greek Orthodox. You know, my he, grandparents he tried to bring the two churches back together. It's split. Yeah. Back in the, yeah. 
he met with Joel Olstein and a Mormon leader the same week. <laughs> I cannot believe that. Oh, my God. It really so sounds like we're seeing the formation you know? of some sort of one-world religious <laughs> like prophecy has always been. Um, and that would probably be the the great harlot of, of Revelation 17 is where that would have yes, to place now it. That, now that could, you know, as it always is, is that there's always, it sounds real good at the time. And then, uh, right. but, but then it falls apart because it sets up something else. And, uh, you know, I read the Bible every uh, Sunday, and I was reading about um, what happened that, uh, when Jesus was uh, taken to court, you know. And uh, he was taken to court, the secular court, three times. And he was also right. taken to the religious court three times. So they tried him six times, and, you know, uh, it's... It was remarkable that he knew and said that I'm going and that his disciples still didn't, I'm doing simplistic here, but his disciples still didn't know where he was going. Like, where are you going? And can he we try go? to tell him. <laughs> He's trying, you know, and then, it, and then it seems to flip in the end, but no, he always told the truth, but he just didn't understand what he was saying. Yeah, yeah. That's another one of those things that, that fits that, that historian, historical criterion of the principle of embarrassment. You know, the disciples wrote the yeah. Gospels. Why would they write something that made, them, made themselves look so bad? <laughs> Where no. they're, they're basically, they're oafs, they're not getting it half the time, you know. It's like, it doesn't and make sense. To, that, it doesn't make sense, but, you know, it, we, it sure reads as human nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I read it, I'm saying, okay, this is just like we are. You know, it reads true to me. So That's easy. what I'm saying. It doesn't make sense that it's, it's something true. that they cooked up. You know, it seems authentic no. because people don't write things that make themselves look bad like that. So why would Peter want, you know, the Gospel of Mark to have all these details about him, you know, denying the Lord? Um, of course, he wouldn't want to make that up. But there it is. No. So, you know, and so you know, back to this this whole thing. You know, the Pope Francis thing goes deeper, Charlotte. You know, on, on Pentecost. Last yeah. Sunday, right? They right. read Muslim prayers at the Vatican. Out I know. Loud, they had a Muslim read... prayer service. Well, you know, the, the whole foundational creed of, of Islam is that God has no son. Okay? It's right there. The whole denial of Jesus Christ is inherent in that religion. How can supposedly the, the leader of the largest church in the world, supposedly a Christian church, allow... An Islamic prayer service that is antichrist by definition in their facility. That that that's astounding. Um, that should just. If I was in the Roman Catholic Church, I would leave. I um, think that would be enough to convince me. I, I don't know how they can can allow that. It's just so incoherent with what they profess to believe. I know that you know they they think it's some kind of tolerance or that it's for peace, but I mean there has to be some sort of discernment. There has to be some sort of of line that you don't cross. Um, you're dealing with the religion that denies who Jesus is completely. Um, it just blows my mind that they're having Islamic prayer in the Vatican. I, I think that that is apostasy. Um, I don't know a nice way to say it. Well, I, I have, it's so peculiar is that I have some pictures. My mother went to Greece, and then she went on to Turkey. And, uh, you know, and then they, another time they were in Jerusalem, and I could not get kind of out of my 
my sister, any kind of feeling like I was expecting. I said, well, you went through Jerusalem. You were there all the spots. I saw the pictures. How did you feel? Oh, nothing. I was just tired from the trip. I was like, what? And then my mother went to, uh, I'm not off topic, actually. I know I sound like that. But anyway, so my mother just went to uh, Greece, which she didn't like. She felt bad. She said, it's so poor there, and there's graffiti and everything else. I was just trying to kid her out of it because my my grandfather was born in Athens, and, you know, my grandmother was from a little island and all that. But anyway, she was sad, you know, and uh, then when she went to Turkey, she said she loved Turkey. So there's a picture of my mother sitting in a gorgeous cathedral in Turkey with huge, I don't, I can't even tell you how big these, these symbols were, of, uh, of uh, the religion that they're practicing there. What religion are they practicing? It's, in it's Turkey, mostly Islam. <laughs> Islam. So there was, it, yeah, was in, mostly, is, yeah. it was Arabic, and there was a big, Yeah, it was Islam. Huge, <laughs> Yeah, it was Islam uh, symbols over the icons in the church, and it did not disturb my my mother or obviously anybody else in there at all. Well, yeah, that's what happened. The the, the Muslims took over over the Christian churches. That's that's right. They took them over, you know, when they had a whole war, (laughs) and they they just took over a lot. I mean, at one point they had all the way into Europe. They even had Spain. Um, and, and of course, there was a big war over all that. But yeah, that's Turkey pretty much got overrun. You know, Turkey is basically, you know, all those churches that Paul is going to in the New Testament, Ephesus, exactly. all those are all in Turkey. Uh, but now that's all Muslim territory. But so you know, the, the Ephesus, First Corinthians, all those places were are basically in Turkey. Um, that was that was Greece at one point. So. Yes, that's it's all why I pretty much it up and, it's all pretty much Muslim now. Yeah. It's Muslim, and then um, you know Constantinople, and uh, my church never called it Istanbul, so <laughs> it's just calling right. it Constantinople. But uh, at one point think, it was Byzantium. It was Byzantium, yeah, Byzantium and then Constantinople, right. and now it's Istanbul. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a clear, so that's, it's that's one of the reasons that yeah we get confused when we read ancient literature sometimes because. You know, places like that actually change names. Um, you know, interestingly, when it was Constantinople, right, that was based on Constantine. So it was the the, the eastern leg of the Roman Empire when it split. So the Roman Empire existed a lot longer than some people imagine because it kind of collapsed in the west, but the, the eastern part lasted a, quite a bit longer than the, the western part. And so it, it was right there in Constantinople. Interestingly, that, you know, in the book Petrus Romanus, I kind of traced the papacy to a point where I think they kind of turned a corner and it all went really corrupt. And it really had to do with this whole idea of when they acquired the papal states, when the Catholic Church officially became a country, they became a political entity. Um, And that was around 756 A.D. What happened is they used a forged document. It was called the Donation of Constantine. It was completely cooked up. In fact, it was written in a form of Latin that did not even exist when Constantine was alive. But, of course, nobody in the Middle Ages actually recognized that, so they got away with it. But when scholars look back at it now, it's obvious that it was faked. But what this claimed was that when 
you know, when the uh, emperor decided to move the capital of the Roman Empire uh, from Rome to Constantinople, uh, Byzantium, Istanbul, uh, that he was going to donate the city of Rome and all the land around it to the Pope. Now, this wasn't the case. Like I said, it was completely false. But the Catholic Church used this document to lay claim to all that land in Italy. Now, for you know, hundreds of years, they had a huge, not a huge, but a big plot of land. They were basically a, a small country. Now, what happened is Napoleon, when Napoleon took over Europe, he, he totally sacked them. And uh, he took all their land. <laughs> so the Vatican had nothing at that point. Napoleon spanked them. Um, so they made a deal with Mussolini. When Hitler and Mussolini came into power, uh, the Pope cooked up a deal with Mussolini. If, if they would agree with fascism and support the dictator Mussolini, that he would give them back their land, or at least part of it, and a bunch of money. So they made, made a little deal with Mussolini, and they got back Vatican City. Um, they're still recognized as a small country. They have their own seat in the United Nations. They got millions of dollars from the fascist government of Italy. Uh, so really they made a deal with the devil once again with Mussolini and got the land back. And, you know, you think about that. Well, you know, why is a church uh, a political entity? Why do they have their own bank? You know, what, what are they doing? You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then you look at all the corruption that's going on with the financial system, the Vatican Bank. Uh, Pope Francis has fired all kinds of people. He's trying to clean it up, but it's such a mess. Mm -hmm. And then you have you know, the whole pedophile thing going on, and uh, it's just horrible. <laughs> they really created a monster. They really created a monster. It's a nightmare. It is. A, yeah. it's a, and it's hurt generations and generations of people that, you know, they're getting reparations now, but uh, who knows? Uh, just I was just reading an article that I think it was the Cardinal said that he didn't know that this was illegal. And I was thinking, what the heck did he just say? That, you know, he wasn't <laughs> aware that uh, molesting children was illegal. Like, so where is it, he coming from with this? Well, I'll tell you what, it, it gets a lot darker than that. Um, in our book, Petrus Romanus, I cite Malachi Martin, a Jesuit priest who was an insider, you know, he, he firmly believed that there is a group that he labeled, he called them the Roman phalanx, um, but he really believed there was a group of Satanists, of true Satan, theistic Satan worshippers who had infiltrated Roman Catholicism, who were working right within the city of Rome, who had done this dark ritual in 1962 to turn the papacy into an instrument of the devil. And this is what you know, an insider, Malachi Martin, Jesuit priest, advisor to three popes, you know, three PhDs, biblical studies, you know, the whole thing. Um, you know, ex-Jesuit priest. This is what he writes. He's a Catholic, uh, so this isn't just some kind of Protestant, you know, trying to demonize Catholics. This is what he wrote. Now, another guy named William H. Kennedy, he's now deceased as well. Both these guys are now dead. Um, William H. Kennedy wrote a book called Lucifer's Lodge. Now, you can Google that, Lucifer's Lodge. If you go to lulu.com, you can download a PDF of this book for free now. It's actually an expose of the whole um, priest-pedophile thing. And what he argues is that it's not just some kind of sexual perversion that a lot of these pedophile cases are really 
connected to ritual Satanism. And the reason the church was going around paying millions of dollars to make people be quiet about it, they gave out millions and millions during the 80s and 90s as hush money so these cases would not go to court. The reason why is they don't want them to go to court because if the truth comes out, people are going to freak. Most of these priests were involved in Satanism. This wasn't just molesting kids. It was rituals. It was demonic rituals uh, where they used these kids as sexual sacrifices. Um, Sexual, it's it's ritual sex magic that's going on. Now, it's well documented, and he he cites enough cases where it's really convincing. And that's available online. I talk about this in the book. The whole purpose of this ritual... Um, in 1962, when uh, Pope Paul VI was brought into office, was to transform the papacy into um, an instrument for the devil. It really was. And these Satanists did it. They did had a parallel ceremony in Charleston, South Carolina, and they were hooked over a phone line to the Vatican in Rome while the Pope was being sworn into office, and they had like this parallel thing going on. Um, it's, Malachi Martin explained it in some detail. We covered it in our book, Petrus Romanus. But... The whole idea, like I said, is to transform the papacy into this. So what we did, what Tom Horn and I did, was kind of connect the dots. So here we have this, this 12th century Catholic prophecy saying, here comes the last pope. Now, when Pope Benedict retired, we had actually predicted that in our book, because there was another Jesuit who said it was going to happen in 2012. Well, we said that Pope Benedict would retire in 2012 and the final pope would arrive. We, you know, we were speculating. The thing that happened, though, is 2012 came, it went, um, it didn't seem to happen. We thought that it was wrong. Well, then Pope Benedict, he stepped down uh, February 11th, 2013, and there was an article in the New York Times that day, and it, it said, I remember, I'll never forget it, it said the decision was made in private many months ago after he returned from his trip from South America, which was like April of 2012. So he literally decided to retire right when it was predicted, uh, but he kept it a secret because of all the controversy that was going on, and they didn't announce it to 2013. So, I mean, there was a book that I found in print in 1951 that said that that was going to happen in the year 2012, and that's in our book. Um, that just blew everybody away. So that when that happened... Lightning struck the Vatican that day. I think you mentioned something weird happened when he stepped down. Uh-huh. Lightning, it, lightning struck the Vatican the day Pope Benedict stepped down twice. It's even you can watch a video of it. It was on it it's was on YouTube. Strange, I saw it. Yeah. Well, the whole thing was strange. Uh, if you remember where he was sitting, I found the whole decoration and what was in back in that screen. I was like, this is just freaky symbolism. It's just. It just hurt because I keep my eye on the Catholic Church. You know, uh, I have many friends that are Catholics, and I go with them to church. And I, you know, but to me, this is this is all like a nightmare. It's the worst possible place to do your crimes, as it's corrupting yeah. generation after generation's uh, feeling of Christianity. You know, it's harming them spiritually in their bodies, it it's hurting them, and. It doesn't go away. You're talking about a crime that doesn't disappear. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, you actually are transforming a person by doing this. Yeah. They're not the same it's person they are after. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it looks like, um, so we connected the dots. So if this yeah. really is the last pope, if they, if they really are these Satanists working to, to turn the papacy in, we su- we're suggesting 
uh, our argument in the book, it's, it's speculative, but what we're saying is that in the prophecies, you know, in the end-time prophecies in the book of Revelation, there's two guys. There's the Antichrist, and there's the false prophet. We're saying right. that this, this final pope could very well be the false prophet, and that's really what we're arguing. Now, when I look at what Pope Francis is doing, he's allowing Muslim prayer in the Vatican, Okay, he's he's telling atheists that if they obey their conscience, they can please God and they'll go to heaven. Really, um, you know, uh, he seems to be fitting the mold of of what I would call a false prophet. Um, whether he's well, a false prophet remains to be seen, but I think he's fitting yeah. the mold quite well. <laughs> well, I think it's just so, it's so startling to everyone. You know, I go back to where I would, when I was a kid growing up, we moved around a lot. So I actually had to walk to church because my parents didn't attend church. I did. And so I ended up in many different churches, and it seems like the Catholic church was open most of the time. You know, back then the doors were open all the time. So I would go to the nearest church. So I ended up in missionaries. I ended up in Cambodian churches, Baptist churches, uh, and Catholic churches. And when I was there, it did feel holy to light the candles and, and do everything, and I and I felt peace. So it's like a horror movie to see all these things going on. And I I go back so far with that that I remember when it was all in Latin, so that was even more holy. You know, we're talking about a holy thing that's being destroyed and corrupted. It's just horrible to me. Well, it is unfortunate. Um, it's happening to a lot of branches of the church. Um, we're seeing a lot mm-hmm. of apostasy in general. Um, and, you know, I think it's to be expected. Prophecy does predict an apostasy. It predicts a falling away that people will no longer hold to sound doctrine. You know, that they'll, they'll, they'll collect teachers to, to, to tell them what they want to hear. It talks about people with itching ears, you know, searching out teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And, you know, I'll look at a lot of what's going on in, in Christianity in general, and that just seems to be the case. A lot of people, you know, want to hear about how God wants them to be rich. You know? And then you look at the message in the New Testament, it's just totally antithetical to that. Um, but yeah. people want to hear it. You know, people want to hear it. It makes yeah. them feel good. It, and, you know, it, that's what I'm seeing a lot of. So, you know, I just expect that sort of thing to increase. I expect the power of the demonic realm to increase in the West as we are increasingly pagan. You know, another idea I talk about quite a bit in the book is we're really becoming uh, pantheistic and monistic. This idea that all is one is really becoming the dominant religious paradigm in America now. A lot of people don't really realize it, but they are pantheistic and monistic. Um, This whole idea that God is within you, and you just have to meditate and find the divine spark within yourself. That, that's a pantheistic view. Um, you know, the biblical idea is that God is transcendent. You know, that he is supernatural. He's above nature. Now, he does dwell within us as the Holy Spirit and things like that in believers, but that's not the same thing as searching within yourself to find God. That's a pantheistic idea. It's a really popular idea. Um, it's the kind of thing that Oprah likes to talk about. Um, fortunately, it's what a lot of pastors are talking about, which is really hard to comprehend, but they are. Um, and this idea that all is one, you know, all is one, this is monism. Um, it's really becoming the dominant paradigm, and it's really the force behind uh, 
a lot of things that we see, like even religious pluralism, this idea that all religions are basically the same, you know, they have basically the same morality. It's just a different way of other people finding God. This is kind of saying that all is one. You know, we just all can't we just all get along? Um, well, not really. I mean, all, it's really saying that all religions are wrong because they can't all be right because they make completely contradictory claims about really basic things like who God is, uh, creation. You know. These ideas are just irreconcilable, like with Islam and Christianity. Sure, in a real superficial way, they're similar. They're monotheistic, you know, and they believe in creation. You know, we can find some similarities, but the difference is, you know, Christians say Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's God incarnate. We believe in a triune God, one God in three persons. Islam, no. Jesus is not God. He's just a prophet. He did not die on the cross. They don't believe he died on the cross. He didn't die for our sins. So they've, they've completely denied the central truth claim of Christianity. So we're not one with them. That's not possible. And that's why Pope Francis is out of his mind to be conducting Islamic prayer services in the Vatican. Um, that's apostasy. It, it, there's just no nice way to say it. Um, and, you know, I just have to say that. I mean, this idea that all is one is incoherent. Um, all religions can be wrong, but they can't all be right. Uh, I don't know how, how to say it any clearer. And I know that it's a popular notion, and everybody wants to be peaceful with each other. And I certainly want to tolerate other people, but, you know, tolerate, a lot of people misunderstand what tolerance is. Tolerance doesn't mean you agree with them. You wouldn't have to tolerate somebody if you already agreed with them. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Tolerance means you live at peace with people you disagree with. You know, that's, that's what yeah. tolerance is. But some people yeah. you know, in our culture have this yeah. idea that we're all supposed to agree with each other. And, and that's just kind of silly. <laughs> well, well, it's it's so true because I have, you know, stayed out of this battle because I'm not a Protestant, I'm Greek Orthodox, and I'm not a Catholic either. So I had to actually thank my mother because I said, Mom, because none of my other sisters got baptized in the Greek Orthodox and we left uh, New York where all the, the Greek family is and who were very much in the church. And it had kind of, well, not it did. I was baptized as a big deal with my Archbishop Michael, who was the one who established the first college here in America. So it was a big deal uh, when I got baptized. And I've always cherished you know, my little ribbon with a cross on it. I got a little pink ribbon. That uh, they gave it my baptism. I still have it. Now I'm going to be 62 next month, and I've had it that and cherished it that long. So I don't go along with all this other stuff that's going on. As and uh, you know, there would never be a. I actually, when I married my husband in the church, he's Catholic, so he had to come to my church, the Greek church, to get married. So they take the Greeks take it really seriously. So you tell me, I hate to ask, what do you think yeah. of the Greek Orthodoxy? I'm going now. Yeah, okay? I think Just I think I that all. Um, I was named after Constantine, by the way. I have a Greek name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that they're they're more on track than than the Roman Catholics. Uh, you know, they have a lot of tradition and a lot of interesting things, but I think they get the gospel basically right and. And, you know, and uh, that's really where, uh, that's the hill that I fight and die on. And I'm afraid that Rome undermined the gospel 
in some fundamental ways historically, especially at the Council of Trent during the 1500s. They actually they gave a long list of things that they cursed, the Roman Catholic Church did. This was right mm-hmm. after the Reformation. And one of the things that they cursed is justification by faith alone. They said, you know, if a man says that he is justified by faith alone, let him be an anathema. Now, to me, that's cursing the gospel. You know, the, the, really, the, the thing that defines Christianity, whether you're a Christian or not, in my mind, is, you know, that Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins, that he was buried, he, was, he rose on the third day, you know, and that he appeared to the disciples. Um, you know, the, the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that we're sinners, that we need a Savior, um, that he, he was resurrected, uh, that, you know, proved that who he was, that he's God, and that he's coming back. These are the things that are foundational, that you're justified by faith in Christ alone, not by works. You know, you don't have to do right. anything to earn your salvation. Well, Catholicism really has set up this whole sacramental system of works where you have to do all these things to be in favor of God or you end up in purgatory. And, and that undermines the gospel in, in fundamental ways. Now, I don't see the Greek Orthodox Church doing that so much. Um, but Roman Catholicism has done that. So, you know, I would think that they're on a much better footing as far as the gospel goes, because I don't see that um, dependency on this whole system. I mean, they have a lot of traditions and all that, but that's not necessarily yeah. bad. That's not the no, same thing like as it. creating this monstrosity of, of, of works-based uh, yes. you know, salvation. I get it. And then there's a couple things of uh, uh, people commenting in chat saying that, um, let's see, John's saying that there's a phrase in the Bible that says the kingdom of heaven is within. And how would you comment on that? Because you were referring okay. to... Okay, That's interesting. Well, so yes. this, I actually just wrote, a piece. there's a guy, I'm going to debate him, I think, in a week. He wrote a book called Apostle Paul Antichrist. <laughs> he was on wow. coast to coast, and he, he claims that Apostle Paul was the Antichrist. But his whole central truth claim to his ministry is that the kingdom of God is within, that you're not a sinner. The kingdom of God is within. Okay, now, so I'm really familiar with that verse. It's in Luke, and um, it's, mis- it's mistranslated <laughs> is, is the point. Look up the verse. I don't have the, um, the verse number right in my mind, but I just did exegesis on it in the original Greek. Um, what you need to do is look cool. it up. Jesus, Jesus is standing in front of a group of Pharisees, and he's telling them uh, that the kingdom of God, actually the correct translation, the kingdom of God is, within, is in your midst. It's among you. It doesn't mean it's within you. Now, in Greek, the interesting thing about the Greek language is it's a lot more precise than English. So, it like there's much. the King James translation, the King James translation reads, the kingdom of God is within you. The thing is, in Greek, that word you, that pronoun, is, is plural, okay? And you can't tell that in English, because you could be plural or it could be singular. Now, Jesus was standing in front of a group of people, and he was telling them that the kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst. The you is plural. It's not singular. So it's not talking about it's within one person. What he was saying, he was standing in the middle of them. He was going, hey, I'm here. I'm right here in front of you. The kingdom of God is within your midst. That's the, con- that's the context of the yeah. verse. So it's really not even saying 
what the person thinks it's saying. It's not saying it's within you like it's inside you. In the context of the passage, Jesus was telling that group that he was there. The kingdom of God was in their midst because he was standing there, that he was God incarnate. That's what it really means. Okay. So, you know, I've been to Bible classes with Greek ladies that their original uh, language is Greek, and but the priest, although spoke Greek and fluent in Greek, used English, right? Boy, mm-hmm. they argue with that guy <laughs> I was thinking, I, I believe the Greek ladies. You know what I mean? Not that I disperse the priest, not at all. But what I'm saying is that they knew what the inflection was. Right. So they would debate these little tiny points, and they really, the, the original Greek uh, speakers know what that means. So it was really amusing watching the arguments. Yeah, it makes a difference. Um, you know, when you're trying to, when you're interpreting an ancient text, uh, you really need to get back to the original language to get the finer points like that, because it, it can make a huge difference. And, and sometimes things just don't translate uh, between languages very well. Uh, you know, Greek has grammatical gender. You know, if you've ever taken French or Spanish, you know that regular nouns have gender. Shoes or, you know, or cars might be feminine, but it doesn't mean anything about sex, but it helps you identify, like if there's a pronoun, you know, it has to be the same case in gender as the noun that it represents. So a lot of times when you're, you know, looking at these verses and it uses a pronoun, you're not sure what it's referring to, you can identify it by things like grammatical gender. So if you know the original languages, you can get a lot more precise you know, when you're when you're nailing some of this stuff down. So it is really helpful when you're trying to do theology and you're trying to be careful. Um, so oh. that's the reason that, you know, seminaries make uh, students take Greek and Hebrew. Um, you know, it really, it, it, it gives you a lot more depth in your ability to interpret the Bible correctly. Right. It's, a, it's well, like an endless uh, argument on that point, you know, but... Where do you put the mystics of the church, let's say, ones that operate on a direct experience with the Holy Spirit or God or Jesus or Mary? What do you do with the mystics? You know, you have to take it by a case-by-case basis. You know, a lot of Protestants are very skeptical about any kind of mysticism. um, Right. Because sometimes it it can be quite subjective, you know, mm-hmm. that's why Protestants are, Protestants in my tradition are very much people of the book. You know, we try to get our theology from scripture, um, from exegesis, from, you know, it's a, it's very, uh, it's a very academic kind of theology. Um, and now there's this whole rich tradition of mysticism where people pray and, you know, have experiences with the Holy Spirit, with God. I, you know, I definitely think that there's some legitimate, uh, legitimate instances of that. You know, I think that um, in Protestantism, you might find it more on the charismatic side of things. Um, I, you know, and I'm not opposed to it. I, I'm a little uh, skeptical of it as a means of drawing theological conclusions because it can be subjective. Um, it, you know, I'm not, how do I know, you know, how accurately this person is you know, interpreting their experience. You know, what what kind of standard do I have to judge it by? You know, the only way I can judge that is, is by the Word of God, you know, and see if what they're saying matches up to it. It's really hard to parse. Um, you know, and that's, if you look at the way I handle the near-death experiences, 
in, in the book, yeah. in the Supernatural Worldview book. You know, I, I tend to discount the transcendental part where people describe going to heaven and all those things because it's just really hard to know what is just their wishful thinking or what is just their subjectiveness and what of it, what part is real or objective. Because you get well, different people describing heaven really radically differently. They're having, you know, no two experiences are that similar. They have some common elements, but it's really hard to um, find a coherent narrative um, that, that's consistent with those kind of things. Now, the kind of data from near-death experiences that I get really excited about is when people leave their body and they see what the neighbors are having for dinner. Because then yeah. you can go ask the neighbors what they had for dinner. All right? And then you know for sure that they saw something they should not have been able to see. And that's the kind of evidence that says, hey, there really is an immaterial soul that exists apart from the body. So I get excited by that. But I don't know what to say You know, when they go see Jesus and they talk about riding on the back of a butterfly and all that. I just don't have any way to, um, to judge that. Okay, so um, I think that uh, when I'm thinking about you and your place and all this and how you have changed so radically from what you used to be like to what it's like now, and then uh, actually you're fine-tuning and writing books and everything, is that I think that's, that's actually a calling. It's like a uh, people are chosen for their certain spot. And we, we've been talking about this uh, a lot amongst the, you know, my friends and each other that, uh, you know, it seems like people are chosen for their spot. I mean, do you feel that uh, you're chosen for what you were doing now? Absolutely. And, and it's in a quite literal way. Um, you know, there was a time, like I said, when I was lost. I was completely beside myself. I think I was being influenced by demons. I was hearing voices, okay? I was literally, you know, certifiably insane. Um, I was at the end of my rope, and this was before, you know, all this happened. And, you know, I heard a voice that told me the seminary or the cemetery. <laughs> it's just as clear as if somebody spoke it right to me. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if that was a guardian angel or the Lord or what. Reality check. It was a reality check. But you know, at that the time, going to seminary yeah. was the last thing that I would ever even have thought that I would ever do when I heard that. I mean, it was not even in my realm of possibilities. I'd never even thought of that, and that's what I heard though, and uh, literally. And I got the impression, and this is why. This book, The Supernatural Worldview, uh, it's really mm -hmm. the first book that I've written, written completely by myself. The first two were written with Tom Horn. It really is, it really is a fulfillment of that calling because, you know, when I was younger, I was interested in all kinds of weird stuff, you know, ESP, ghosts, UFOs, all this kind of stuff. I was always interested in that stuff. Well, the Lord really did lay on my heart at that time uh, that he wanted to use me to minister in areas that, you know, most Christians were afraid to even talk about, all right? And it was really clear to me that that was my calling. So I don't have any doubt whatsoever that it's a calling. I, I remember when I was called. I remember what the mission was, and I'm doing the best I can to, 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 to fulfill it. I think, okay, so you have had uh, spiritual experiences that have uh let you know that 
these things are real, first of all. It's just not what you're studying, but it's all because you are really into researching, and I think you're you're translating books and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you're really involved in, in things. So, uh, But you've also had direct experience of, of something. Well, that was like the one I just described to you. <laughs> yeah. That, that, what was that? I heard a voice said, the cemetery or the cemetery or the cemetery? <laughs> and, and, you know, I there wasn't anybody in the room. It was of, like yeah, somebody I think who that's just, kind of incredible. Because usually yeah. the voices don't talk like that. They, you know, because I ask, I'm a counselor for federal prisoners, and some of them have schizophrenia. I always ask them, well, what are your voices saying? It's always negative. I was like, you know what I mean? They're, yeah, they're, and I heard uh, that too. You know, yeah, they beat, it, beat themselves up so terribly. You know, There's this is different what you're talking about. At the website for this book, it's www.supernaturalworldview.com. I've been blogging on different topics from the book. Uh, and, you know, interesting, that comment you just made, though, is that just um, last week, an academic journal uh, connected schizophrenia to demon possession. A uh, really interesting uh, journal article. Um, you can find that at the supernaturalworldview.com. I just kind of have a link to it in the abstract. But, yeah, it was the, um, the Journal of Religion and Health. Um, it's suggesting, you know, these are pretty... Now, you know, you're not saying all cases. Not all, but they're suggesting so, that hallucinations that are sometimes attributed to a malfunctioning brain may actually be caused by demons. Um, you can check it out. I mean, it's just it's an article written in an academic well, journal. It's, you know, that sounds really interesting to be in counsel. Of course, we have medication and the voices stop. Right. So would you consider right. that it's, actually organic problem when the medication Well, works? they've actually had people... Um, who are schizophrenic, you know, diagnosed schizophrenic that have undergone deliverance ministry and then they're not schizophrenic anymore. Wow. <laughs> so what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I, you know, I don't know how I feel, but I think in some cases, um, yes. Uh, Maybe so. Yeah, it could be. No. I think there's probably a biochemical element and then there could be a spiritual yeah. element. And it, and it might be some of both, you know. Who's to say? Um, you know, I kind of think the demons would, would maybe perhaps manipulate your brain chemistry in, in such a way that they could even make it you know, seem like a biochemical thing. I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of speculative. But that's, it looks like a really interesting journal article. And I, I've, I've actually cataloged quite a few um, of these sorts of things that I think are indicative of this paradigm shift that I'm talking about. You know, when you start seeing, you know, academics at universities giving credence to things like demon possession. That's kind of astounding. It's not something that you would expect, given that most of our universities are, you know, really much, very much naturalistic, and, um, you know, that's typically the, uh, the dominating paradigm. When you start seeing neuroscientists, there's another article that I have posted there where a neurologist is suggesting that bad dreams could be caused by demons. Now, you know, I just found that rather astounding that you have an epidemiologic neurology at a major research hospital. I think it was at um, Boston Hospital or something like that. I'm trying to find the article. But, yeah, it's, it's at the supernaturalworldview.com. Um, let's see. I don't see it right off the bat. But, yeah, there's an article where a, a, a neurologist has connected bad dreams and some forms of mental illness he calls it entity attachment. 
which sounds yes. like a polite way of saying demon possession. <laughs> yeah, I I do believe in that because I think there's many strange. Well, of course, Jesus talked about many demons. Go ahead. He did. Yeah, I don't think it's an option for you know real Christians who who claim to follow Jesus. And this is one of the statistics that blows my mind, but you know, I think the Barna Group did a survey where like 40% of the American church doesn't believe Satan is real. They think he's just a symbol, some kind of abstract symbol for evil. Well, you know, so how do they account for the capital? Okay, how do they account for the capital <laughs> D, though? That's what my my theory is. It's a capital Well, I mean, D how can you claim to follow Jesus? Jesus absolutely believed he was a literal being. He he was tempted by him in the desert, right? Um, Jesus treated him like a personal being, obviously. Um, if we believe Jesus, how can he, you know, it's not really a, an option to, to say he doesn't really exist. Um, I guess, you know, I don't know how they can live consistently with that. But, yeah, this, um, there's, there's a Dr. Patrick McNamara of the Boston University School of Medicine. Is a neurologist who believes that dreams and connected to possession. Oh, it's getting kind of jumbled. I think uh, the way you're talking into the phone or something. Uh, Go ahead. Start again. It said, okay, I found the article. It's um, Dr. Patrick yes. McNamara of Boston University School of Medicine. So the Boston University School of Medicine. He's a neurologist who believes that bad dreams and mental illness are connected to spirit possession. Okay, this is linked at supernaturalworldview.com. So you have a, you know, a major academic neurologist, major university, Boston University School of Medicine. Uh, the name of the article at my website is Neurologist Connects Dreams to Supernatural Entity Attachment. So I think that sort of thing is really indicative of this paradigm shift that I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't think ten years ago, I don't think you would have found anybody saying something like that at Boston University School of Medicine. Um, I think that these things are increasing. So, you know, that's why these academics are recognizing it, because they just can't avoid it anymore. Um, I think that is indicative that war in heaven and Revelation 12 is ongoing, and the devil's time is short. That's kind of, that's my, that's my feeling about it, and that's kind of what I argue in the book. But I think we're about to run out of time, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we, we're, we're going. Uh, I wanted to ask you that there was like, are you tired now? I'm getting there. <laughs> okay. Because, yeah. well, you know, it's later where you are, so I wouldn't understand. Um, do you want to wrap it up now, or are you going to want to let Let's me wrap it up in, you know, okay. yeah, a few minutes, five <laughs> minutes or so. All righty. So uh, uh, where can they get your book, Chris? Uh, because you have, uh, you know, three, and this new one is is uh, very interesting. Cause I was, well, I was going to ask you about uh, your interaction with Sid Roth. It's in the book. Okay. Well, yeah, that happened. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not charismatic. I'm, I, I go to a Southern Baptist church, and probably most of the people that I interact with, they do, don't really talk about things like speaking in tongues or charismatic gifts or anything like that. Now, I absolutely do believe that they still occur. Um, a Baptist pastor that I respect a lot is uh, Dr. John Piper, and I cite him in the book as someone who actually prays in a private prayer language. Um, and so Piper has always been somebody on the, 
you know, the conservative Baptist side of theology who, who disagrees with this consensus. There's a consensus uh, view that those things ceased with the apostles. Now, the charismatic movement, uh, you know, kind of goes completely the other way, where, you know, there's some pretty some pretty wild-looking stuff going on that I don't really understand sometimes, and so I'm kind of skeptical about some of it. You know, so I don't, you know, somewhere in between there, I think that there's an underlying reality where the Holy Spirit really does still do these things. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we were on the Sid Roth show, and Sid is a, is a charismatic um, and absolutely believes in this stuff. And there's just some, some rather astounding things that happen. He was interviewing us about our book, Exo Vaticana, and that's the book that I was speaking on, you know, at MUFON thing in, there in Los Angeles. It's really about right. the Vatican's interest in aliens and UFOs and whatnot. So we were speaking on those two books mainly, but Exo Vaticana was the new one. And Sid had us on the program. Um, we did a question and answering service after the thing, and you know, Sid, would, he prayed, and, and like people would, would fall over. Their knees would buckle. And, and I don't... You know, I was looking at that, and I just didn't even think that um, – I don't think they were faking it. Something really uh, – something inexplicable was going on when I was there. And so he he was asking me, you know, what I thought about these things. And I told him that, you know, I believed in them in theory but hadn't really experienced any of it. So I actually went uh, to his private office after the show, and uh, we prayed, and one of his other assistants and all came back and prayed and I actually had an experience where I, I, I spoke in tongues and that's the only time that's ever happened to me now I've, I've tried to do it in my devotional prayer time at home uh, and, and and I've done it some I mean I, I it's really hard for me to, to let go enough to, to let it happen I'm kind of uh, very um, uptight about it because I'm, I'm always wondering if I'm taking it somehow or making myself do it. So it's hard for me to let go and just let it flow. But, yeah, it's something yeah. that actually has happened since, but it's, it, I'm still not terribly comfortable with it. I, I think it's because it's, it's something that's kind of outside my uh, tradition, and I just don't know how to handle it exactly. But it, it literally did happen to me in his office, and it wasn't something that uh, I felt like, you know, I was just forced to do or that, you know, anything that it just kind of came out. Um, and I think it was supernatural. It, it's really hard to uh, explain, um, other than I think it's what Paul was talk, talking about in the book of First Corinthians. Well, it's a gift, and there's many gifts, including prophecy and healing and all kinds of different things. And talking in tongues is one of them, and I think for a pretty traditional guy, that would be kind of embarrassing. Because we're self-conscious all the time. I mean, we're just learning and we're growing, you know. uh, But I have family members that are Pentecostal, and it's normal for them. Right. Yeah, I'm self-conscious about it when I'm alone. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It's like these complicated matters, and, you know, I think that (laughs) the ultimate judge is our relationship with our higher power and that – you know, what's your relationship just, with your, yes, you know. Yeah. That's, what, and that's I, your know, foundation I don't think that, is I, keeping I, it simple. That's the way I feel about this whole thing. Right. If it's me, yeah, I don't then think I that it's a requirement. God, I keep it simple. No, I don't Absolutely. feel like it's a requirement. Some can do it. Some are, are helped by it. But it has to be for the greater good. Maybe somebody doesn't understand 
and they want right. to hear it in a different language or something like that. And, and Paul, you know, think, yeah, and Paul yeah. was really clear that not everybody has all of the gifts or even the same gifts. No. Um, you know, he, he talks about that several times, you know, that we don't all have the same gifts. And, you know, he even makes this analogy about the body, you know, it, you know, with the eye get mad at the hand because it's not an eye, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we're all different parts. Exactly. They're all different parts of the body, but they work together, you know, to, to form a coherent whole. So you know, we all have different giftings and, and different roles to play in the body of Christ. Okay. And yeah, I'm more of an analytical type, yeah. you know, and but that's kind of my calling. You don't get out of your comfort zone. That's good for you. It's not good for comfort. You're speaking in tongues now, like what? <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm not afraid to try new things. You know, I'm always willing to try, and you know, I like yeah. to try to be intellectually honest and give things a fair shake. But yeah, I absolutely think it happens. It did happen to me, um, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I can say that, but it's probably not something you're going to see me doing a lot. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's been my pleasure to be on the show. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. How can people get a hold of you now? Okay, well, the two websites, the supernaturalworldview.com, that's where I'm really blogging on the topics that, from the book, The Supernatural Worldview. If you want to get that book, there's links at that website. It's available on Amazon.com. It's in Barnes & Noble's bookstores as well, I believe. So you can probably find it at your local bookstore. Um, and I actually have some signed copies. If you want to buy one from me at the website, supernaturalworldview.com, there's a link on the right sidebar where you can buy one directly from me, and I'll sign it for you. And it's really about the same price as Amazon. Um, and oh, then the other website where I, I blog more on apologetics and theology uh, more specific kind of academic Christian issues and, and apologetics, things like that, is Logos Apologia, L-O-G-O-S-A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A dot org, LogosApologia.org. That's where I, um, I tackle more traditional biblical studies, apologetics, theology, things like that. Supernatural worldview is more focused on weird stuff. Um, so those are my two websites, and I'm also on Facebook, and I'll accept a friend request from anybody, basically. Um, you know, mm-hmm. as long as uh, as long as you don't post anything vulgar or weird on my wall or something, then we're fine. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So just again, I want to thank you and uh, very much for being on, and you're welcome on any time to discuss this topic. We never even got to the telescope, Lucifer telescope, which I want to talk about, nah. but it's Ahead. There's three big books there, so it's hard to squeeze in even a couple That's hours. Right. It's hard. So even your talk, I felt like there was so much more left to learn and listen. So do get his books. So uh, it's it's very. I love the. I love all of them, and especially the last one. And uh, I want to encourage everybody to get a hold of Chris Putnam. P U T N A M. I kept spelling it wrong. I don't spell it wrong anymore. So I want to wish you a very great night. Uh, Chris, and thank you so much. And I have a feeling I'm going to be seeing you around. Me too. Okay, I'll look forward to that. Thank you very much for having me on. Take care. Good night. Take care, Chris. Good night. And I want to just thank everybody for uh, being in chat. Now, I can't, uh, I have, you know, the smartest chat room in the world, I have to say. And everybody came up with a lot of uh, different opinions on what's going on. So we have a little time, so I'm going to read some of the things that, uh, that people were saying. And that you have to 
uh, since we're talking about uh, his personal books, his faith, and all that, uh, it was his point of view. Now, everybody has their own uh, points of view on things. So uh, I respect everybody's honor and right to have their own views. So even Chris and I disagree, but my job here isn't to argue with my uh, guest. And um, I appreciate his scholarly attitude about this whole thing. Now, about the near-death experience, so let's go back to that. Um, of course, I've had a couple near-death experiences, and I do know that it exists. And I had a recent uh, exceptional dream about uh, being walking down the street like uh, I was with some other people, but I didn't look around me. And uh, it was then I came to two buildings as I was walking through this hallway, and I was being uh, guided, like there was a tour guide guiding me. But... As I went around a corner, I saw the most astounding sight. It was like Yosemite is beautiful. I don't know if you, if anybody listening has been to Yosemite. It cannot be more beautiful. The waterfalls and the water and the mountains and the animal. I mean, it's just the redwoods. It's just so beautiful. Anyway, when I ran around the corner, that's what I saw. But it was all shining, glistening. It was like Yosemite times a hundred. It was such so beautiful. It was so beautiful. When I saw it, I said out loud, oh, my God, and I heard myself yell, oh, my God, and it woke me up. And I think at times God is showing me a little bit of heaven. So I do believe that uh, in our sleep that sometimes we get to see a little bit of heaven. I think that's what actually sleep is for. We have, I have many different kinds of dreams. Uh, some are regular dreams, some are prophetic dreams, some are... Uh, dreams of my childhood in the past, and I'm working on all those issues. But I know there's what I call the big dream, and that um, the big dream is the messages from my higher power. And I had that even the Blessed Mother and Joseph many colors come to me, angels and things like that. So um, that's my experience. But I have also, uh, at, at the one bottom of my life, some certain thing happened. And I was at the bottom, and I had a rapturous experience with the Holy Spirit. And that's why how I know and I cling to uh, my church I was born in. I, I'm not I'm not nowhere near going to church all the time. You know me, I'm just kind of, um, I read the Bible, uh, I'm trying to do what's right, you know, but I'm not a perfect Christian at all. A lot of people are way better than me, you know, but um, I'm not entirely comfortable with, everything that's going on in, in the church or in the world or anything else. So anyway, I'm I'm uh, just just trying to tell you as I believe in the world and out-of-body experiences. So Robert was saying, uh, if he doesn't mind, that his mother had an out-of-body experience at the age of 16. She was having surgery. And she saw the doctors working on her, and she saw her own mother in the waiting room praying in the corner. I know that to be true. You know, when he wrote it, I really believed that that was true. And um, then Milton says, is, uh, is, he's saying something about Bible verse. I'm just going to read it, and uh, you make up your mind about it. Just a few verses later in Luke, it says, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed, and the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Where, where were these folks, folks taken? Within, uh, so what, it, what he's saying, uh, Milton, in that part of the... Uh, the Bible is that at the end days, 
people will be raptured up into heaven and some will be taken and some will be left behind. That's what that's referring to. But you actually have to go to Chris's site because he's a theologian or, you know, he's the scholar on this whole thing. I'm not a scholar. I'm just telling you my experience and I just happen to read the Bible. That's all. I'm just like a regular person. And anyway, so and I do get what John said, uh, you know, about that was that voice that he heard, could that have been a demon? Uh, well, I think if it turns out to be good things, that maybe it's not. You know, I think that we have to watch, let's say we have uh, these kind of activities or people saying they have a demon or it's not a demon or we're not supposed to worship idols, yet I'm Greek Orthodox and I venerate uh, icons. Uh, I have a lot of things thrown at me. You know, what I do is know that everybody's different. I do believe in uh, my Savior, Jesus, and I'm just going to stick with that. I'm just sticking with a plain old way of doing stuff, you know. And I do have all these other experiences, psychic experiences and all kinds of experiences. And hopefully they're from God. That's all I can say. So if there's any other questions, you can tell me in chat and I'll read it. So uh, let me see what else. And then Robert uh, says, demons come in as angels as well as light. And you know what? That's true. You know, that's how everybody gets tricked. And um, at my out-of-body experience where I probably and possibly died in my sleep, who met me on the roof was the devil in a three-piece suit, and he was extremely evil, but he was very handsome, the the most handsome man I've ever seen, Mediterranean-looking, and uh, in a suit, and he had pure loathing for humans. That's why I could I knew it was the devil. So we had a battle up there, and I won. And I was going to heaven, but I started thinking about my kids. So I've been back uh, since then. I came back into my body. And um, my kids, not only I raised my kids, uh, now I've had the pleasure of watching my three grandchildren grow up. So anyway, you know, there's a, you know, someday we're all going to know the answers. And every time somebody passes away, I think this, I think now they know. You know, that's what I tell myself, oh, that, now they know. You know, and we're all going to meet each other again. And that's what I believe, too, is death does not hold us. Death is is a transition. Um I happen to believe one way. I was born into a certain faith, and I'm glad. I'm glad this is so. It's been very stabilizing for me because I do have a tendency to have a lot of psychic dreams and uh, psychic experiences and, and strange things going on. Uh, people that come to me before they even die, 30 days before they die, and tell me they're going to die. I don't understand how this works, uh, but it's happened to me over and over. And um, say people from across the world, uh, I've been, let's say, India. In my dreams, I've gone to India to sing with some sect in, you know, in a cave. And I found out there really is a sect in a cave in India called the the Singers. And I'm just telling you my random personal experiences. And uh, then John says, uh, the supernatural entity of my dreams may be me at a higher level. Now, that is all true. Now, and plus, we are talking now, scientifically, we do have, you know, different dimensions. So, uh, God, to me, rules it all. So, it kind of stabilizes me, as I say, 
I believe in having your feet firmly on the ground, and because your head could be up in the clouds, you could be doing whatever you want, because I think uh, creative thinking is what we have a brain for, not to live inside of a box. So um, I I welcome uh, your thoughts, and I, I just think you're a bunch of geniuses in this chat, and I want to thank all the guests for tuning in, and Robert, John, and Milton, and, you know, I, I just don't know many... Uh, uh, you know, blog, talk, chat, whatever, the kind of intelligence that comes into my chat and asks these important questions. And, uh, you know, I think, I think as uh, Claudette, Claudette has find out, but I think what Claudette brought up is that we do have to watch our motivation and intentions and that we really um, want our way, and that's our human nature. We want it our way. And uh, she also brought up this horrible thing uh, in Ireland that I can't bring that up all the way because uh, it was very traumatic for me, but that uh, I'm sure you heard about uh, all the bones and the massive graves in Ireland. Uh, they were supposedly died of uh, many different diseases and stuff like that, but there was just so many bones and bones and bones and bones year after year, I guess, and... Uh, uh, she was bringing that up, and I guess that had been hidden, but it was uh, um, uh, they were doing some excavation, and they found it. So, you know, if anybody has any information that, uh, we can talk about it at another show. But um, I really, really, really appreciated uh, everybody that uh, has been commenting, and I'm trying to cover it all, you know, because I'm not a scholar like a lot of you guys. You guys got bigger degrees than me also, but I could talk. And I've had experiences, so I guess that's what's helping me. Yes, let me see. Um, any other questions? You're going to tell me now because I'm getting ready to wrap this up. Let's see. So what I wrote was, to me, that all of it boils down to love your neighbor as yourself, love God, all the way with your whole being. And I think that would help us to think of something outside of us. You know, a loving creator, which I call God. And that uh, there is a definite lower power that's uh, active on the earth. And we see it by how many people are being hurt by it. So fight the good fight. That's what my Uncle Louie always said. Fight the good fight, Kiki. Okay, and um, anyway, so I want to thank you all, and uh, good night, and uh, I want to thank Robert for what he just said, and uh, uh, everybody, Just uh, I just wish you all the best, and uh, I also wish you a loving and creative life, so, you know, whatever you're uh, getting into in your life, uh, remember that um, if we go with love and kindness... Um, that's why I brought up when we were talking about these certain people that are the real deal, and I've met these people. Um, it is a beautiful thing. And um, let me see. Okay. Okay, John says, good night. If God is infinite, then everything is within him. Good point, good point. Yeah, and then Robert's saying, yes, fight the good fight. So uh, we wish everybody a good night and... I actually have a friend who has a who has the uh, rights to this song, 
and uh, he's actually letting me play it on the show. So as we wrap it up, uh, I'll really listen to on the radio. And uh, God bless you all. Have a good sleep. I hope you enjoyed the show because I really did. And uh, you guys take care. Love you. So here, listen to the song a little bit. <laughs> 